Now, you might not have thought about aphrodisiac food and wine pairings, but it's been on my mind a lot lately. <laughs> and I think most wines are aphrodisiacs in themselves, but there are certain foods that we tend to associate as aphrodisiac foods. And so that's what I'm looking at and which wines go with them. I hope this whole thing sparks a passionate debate, if you will, because we're going to be matching libido-lifting dishes with different wine types to stimulate your senses. Now, I believe that romance starts in the kitchen or even in the wine cellar before you get to the bedroom. <laughs> and the first rule is to pair the wine you love with yourself, because there's no sense in finding a perfect wine for oysters if you don't like it. And as always, when I talk about food and wine pairing, these are just guidelines. I don't call them ever hard and fast rules, but I think of it as the marriage of different ingredients. Do you have a thirst to learn about wine? Do you love stories about wonderfully obsessive people, hauntingly beautiful places, and amusingly awkward social situations? Well, that's the blend here on the Unreserved Wine Talk podcast. I'm your host, Natalie McLean, and each week I share with you unfiltered conversations with celebrities in the wine world, as well as confessions from my own tipsy journey as I write my third book on this subject. I'm so glad you're here. Now pass me that bottle, please, and let's get started. Welcome to episode 63. Now, Valentine's Day is only two days away, so we're going to have a little fun today pairing wine with aphrodisiac foods, from oysters to chocolate. Plus, I'll chat about what it means when someone describes a wine as tasting salty. Is there really salt in wine? And how can you tell? This conversation first aired on my regular Facebook Live video show, so you'll often hear me responding to a comment that one of the viewers has made. You can join that conversation every second Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, including this evening, if you're listening to this podcast on the day it's published. I'll put a link in the show notes where you can find us tonight at nataliemclean.com forward slash 63. It's fun. We chat, we drink, we laugh, we drink some more. So pour yourself a glass and join us. You can also join me on a free online video wine class called The Five Wine and Food Pairing Mistakes That Can Ruin Your Dinner and How to Fix Them Forever. Go to nataliemclean.com forward slash class and choose a time and date that work for you. I look forward to seeing you there. Okay, on with the show. All right, let's turn to our first topic tonight, and that is aphrodisiac wines. Now, you might not have thought about aphrodisiac food and wine pairings, but it's been on my mind a lot lately. <laughs> and I think most wines are aphrodisiacs in themselves, but there are certain foods that we tend to associate as aphrodisiac foods. And so that's what I'm looking at and which wines go with them. I hope this whole thing sparks a passionate debate, if you will, because we're going to be matching libido-lifting dishes with different wine types to stimulate your senses. Now, I believe that romance starts in the kitchen or even in the wine cellar before you get to the bedroom. <laughs> and the first rule 
is to pair the wine you love with yourself. Because there's no sense in finding a perfect wine for oysters if you don't like it. And as always, when I talk about food and wine pairing, these are just guidelines. I don't call them ever hard and fast rules, but I think of it as the marriage of different ingredients. So just as you might take a chocolate cake and put a swirl of raspberry in it, those flavors go so beautifully together. Think about that when we're marrying food and wine. Now, on to some fun historical facts. Many ingredients have historically been considered aphrodisiacs, sometimes because the food physically resembled male private parts like avocados, which is according to the Aztecs, by the way, they grew on testicle trees, hmm. and their female counterparts, oysters and figs. Other foods, such as chili peppers, provoked a fiery passion of love with the increased heartbeat and sweating, and yet other foods contain certain minerals that increase energy, stamina, and blood flow throughout the body as well as to vital organs. An example of that is ginkgo biloba. Am I saying that correctly? Ginkgo biloba. So let's talk about eight matches, and let's start with oysters. The ancient Romans called oysters an aphrodisiac based on promiscuous women gulping down lots of them. But then again, the ancient Romans also thought that turnips were in the same category, so I'm not sure how much we can trust their guidance. Casanova, that 18th century Venetian lover, ate 40 oysters a day for breakfast with his mistress in the bathtub built for two. Now, oysters have vital minerals such as copper, iron, and zinc, all of which are essential for male fertility. So, what do you think or do you have a favorite pairing with oysters? Now, for me, first of all, I should admit I don't like oysters. <laughs> I've tried one or two, but I find it's a textural thing. They're slimy and ee, I don't know what it is. I've got to teach myself to like oysters, but I have had one or two. And I think with their briny taste and sometimes not fishy taste because we don't want oysters that are fishy and old, but with the briny, salty taste, I think a crisp white wine goes beautifully. The classic match, of course, is a Chablis, an unoaked Chardonnay from northern Burgundy, but equally well are sparkling wines, bubblies, whether it's champagne or sparkling wine from another region. So yeah, with oysters then, if you're on a bit of a budget, you can also get a cava, which is tends to be more earthy and dry than a Prosecco, but Proseccos will work. The Italian bubbly, cava is the Spanish wine, a Spanish bubbly. Our um, North American sparkling wines are terrific, um, whether it's from California, Niagara, BC, or Nova Scotia. And I want to know from you, is there an aphrodisiac food that we should be talking about? I've got eight different ones that I'm going to talk about. All right, let's go on to the second food I have, pine nuts. Yeah, you might think that is unusual, but pine nuts like oysters are also high in zinc. They've been part of potions prescribed to the lovesick in the past, but they work just as well in pesto, in my opinion. And for me, a classic pairing with pine nuts, because it has sort of an herbal taste, I love a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc or 
uh, Sauvignon Blanc from other regions like the Loire Valley, or of course, like South Africa and others that produce it. But what about you? If you've got a pesto, which does have that herbally green taste, what do you like to match with that? So pine nuts is number two. Now, next up, number three is acai berry. Hopefully I'm saying that correctly, acai. It's the Brazilian acai berry, which has been called natural Viagra. The acai is the most concentrated botanical source of iron in the world. That's why a lot of people take it as a health food. It improves blood flow throughout the body. It tastes like chocolate and dark berries. Now it comes in powder and capsules, but that's not very romantic. What are you gonna do, sit in front of the fireplace and <laughs> break open some capsules or down a capsule with your wine? But because it has that dark berry and chocolate taste, my choice of pairing would be a full-bodied red, maybe with some mocha notes. So we're looking for some oak aging and or some very rich, flavorful, fleshy, ripe, dark plums and berries. So I'm thinking a Shiraz from Australia, a ripe Cabernet from California. Maybe you have some other suggestions. Not sure if you envision yourself sitting by the fire and popping acai berries <laughs> into your mouth, but they are the natural Viagra, so I had to put it on the list. Let us move on to the next category. Next up is asparagus. Probably not top of your list for aphrodisiac foods, but these slender long green stalks are best served lightly steamed while still firm and bathed in melting butter or hollandaise sauce. Now, doesn't that have your juices watering? Asparagus, like a bad boyfriend, is tough on wine due to natural organic compounds that make the wine taste bitter. So when it comes to asparagus, I'm very much in the camp of pine nuts, and I would therefore go with a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc or a Gruner Veltliner, the famous zesty white wine of Austria, a Vino Verde from Northern Portugal. All of these are not oaked or not very much, and they tend to be zesty, green, herbal, can handle asparagus because if you put asparagus with a buttery Chardonnay, it's just going to clash. It can often make a wine taste sweeter than it is because it has cinar, which makes everything taste sweeter afterwards. Artichokes have this too, and mercaptans, which just wreck everything. <laughs> so asparagus is a special challenge, but when you have a bridging ingredient like your melted butter or your hollandaise, that will widen your choices. I'd still go with a crisp white wine that's not oaked. Next up, I have soft, creamy cheeses, such as camembert and brie. They ooze sensuality. I want to say that again. Ooze sensuality when they flow like lava over a crusty piece of baguette and coat every crevice of your mouth. Mm -mm -mm. So when it comes to soft cheese pairings, I think a buttery Chardonnay will work, especially if you like to layer your richness, rich on rich. Or you can try a steely Riesling or a Sauvignon Blanc to cut right through the creamy richness 
of that brie or camembert. Let us move on to the next one, which is strawberries and whipped cream. Now here, shape and texture come into play. This dessert isn't as sweet and rich as chocolate, but it does require a medium to sweet wine that has some citrus notes. I would go back to your chocolate dipped strawberries would be in this category as well. So with this, I might try a ice wine. Generally, I don't think ice wine is a sweet enough wine for a pure chocolate dessert or even a cheesecake. Those are just too rich for ice wine, which by the way, usually only has about 10% alcohol. It just doesn't have that rich, unctuous, voluptuous texture that say a Sauternes would have or a Hungarian Tokai or of course a port. So with strawberries and whipped cream, the classic at Wimbledon, the tennis match, is champagne. But I just think that's a good way to kill your champagne. It's just too sweet. If you've got a bubbly with some sweetness, sure. But with strawberries, whipped cream, I'd go ice wine. I'd go an off-dry to medium sweet Riesling, like the German Spatlese. All right. Now let's get to chocolate, shall we? Mm -mm -mm. Let me tell you about chocolate. So Casanova, that 18th century womanizer, also loved chocolate in addition to his oysters. He drank a cup of hot chocolate every day. So chocolate ignites similar positive endorphins to being in love. They've studied this. So in the brain, when you eat chocolate, similar endorphins are released as when you're in love. Now, I think the wine match depends on the amount of sugar and milk solids in the chocolate. The less of these, i.e. dark chocolate, the drier the wine can be, like an Amarone. Also, in dark chocolate, it has a higher concentration of cacao. Reciato is in that family of repassed wines like Amarone, and they're darker, they're richer. Reciato is even sweeter than Amarone. Not that Amarone is technically sweet, but it does taste sweet because it's so ripe and the grapes are dried on the uh, straw mats before fermentation. For milk chocolate that's sweeter and has more dairy and milk solids, I would go for a richer, sweeter dessert wine such as port. Passion fruit caramels blend both the sharpness of the fruit and toffee richness of the caramel. You might want to try a tawny port in that case. Sherry goes from completely bone dry, a fino, amontillado, and graduated up, just like Riesling does, to a full-on sweet sherry called a cream sherry. Now, some famous brands are Bailey's and others, but I would say the sweeter style of sherry is what you'd be looking at with chocolate, and I would love to pair a sweet sherry with chocolate that has some toffee or nuts, pralines, caramel, something like that. I think that would be a pretty to-die-for combination. Now, of course, chocolate and wine pairing is a whole big topic in and of itself because we've got all the way from dark chocolate, milk, white, and then chocolate mixed with different things like grenache or pralines, pecans, caramels, all the rest of it. So that deserves a course in and of itself. (laughs) 
And speaking of courses, by the way, if you have not taken my free online video wine class, please pick a time and day that work for you. Join me on that because I go over the five food and wine pairing mistakes that can ruin your dinner and how to fix them forever. So save yourself a spot on that because we go into even more food and wine pairings. Oh, let's talk about creme brulee. Creme brulee to me has a sort of burnt butter or toffee flavor. And I mean that in a positive sense. So it has to be a sweet wine because the wine should be sweeter than the dessert. So creme brulee is not as intensely sweet as chocolate, but it's still got that lovely burnt butter toffee taste. And I would go with a Tokai. That's the Hungarian sweet dessert wine. And it tastes like sort of apple pie. I just think that would be beautiful with creme brulee, but I would love to hear your suggestions. With lobster, I would probably go with a crisp white wine, unless it's lobster and melting butter. Uh -uh -uh. Then you can start to venture into Chardonnay with uh, some oak on it. Nova Scotia Tidal Bay with lobster, natural pairing. On your peaches, probably an ice wine if they're fresh peaches, depending on how ripe and sweet they are and if you're putting anything else with them. What would I pair with Netflix? Anything, any wine goes with, well, I guess it depends on what you're watching. Like if you're watching When Harry Met Sally or something like that, a rom-com, then we could get into a whole other topic. All right. So here is my eighth and final aphrodisiac food. It is bacon. Yes, bacon. Bet you didn't think bacon was sexy, but the smell of the food can stimulate desire, as studies have shown. Smells of certain foods not bacon, but they will increase blood flow to strategic areas. In men, that's pumpkin pie and lavender. And for women, curiously, it's cucumber and licorice. Conversely, those who lose their sense of smell also are found to have diminished sexual appetite. That is just very sad, in addition to not being able to smell wine. Now, bacon hasn't been scientifically proven to stimulate blood flow or sexual appetite, but I'm nominating it as one of the most potent aphrodisiacs on the planet because I think there's nothing sexier in the morning when someone is cooking bacon for you and does the dishes afterwards. You just can't beat it. <laughs> it's a breakfast food, but you know, it's the morning after, right? <laughs> But also bacon can often be an ingredient in many dishes, like bacon-wrapped scallops. Scallops then don't destroy wine as much as they would on their own. Scallops are among the toughest for wine pairings. So with bacon, I would pair it with a robust red wine. You often hear some red wines described with a meaty or bacon note. I'm thinking Rhone Valley Syrah. Could be an Australian Shiraz, little black pepper going on there. But I just think that would be such a great pairing between the two. All right. I'm going to go on to the next topic, which is salt and wine. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, this wine, there's a lot of salinity or salt in this wine? When we hear people talk about, or if in fact you have tasted salinity or salt in wine, where does that come from? There's different theories. One is that salt comes from Vines planted close to the ocean, sort of briny breezes deposit sea salt on the grapes. 
So do we then taste it in the wine the way we get a briny taste in oysters? Well, from my research, many winemakers, not everybody, of course, it's not a consensus, don't think that the iodine absorbed through grape skins would make its way past fermentation and then into the final wine, and that's what you'd be tasting. Another theory is that it comes from the water source for the wines. So what we're tasting or sensing is really the mineral content of the wine, much like the taste of whiskey is influenced by its water source. Another comparison would be mineral waters themselves. People have done tastings, people with too much time on their hands, have done tastings of mineral waters side by side and can tell, or say they can, that one mineral water can taste distinctively different from others in the lineup. New York City even has a water sommelier at one of the Four Seasons. A third theory is that the salty taste comes from various layers in the soil where the vines have thrust their roots. Of course, too much salt in soil will prevent vines from growing in the first place, which is why they worry about that in certain regions of Australia where the water table has dropped or is drying up and the soils are becoming increasingly saline or salty. It's a danger to the vineyards. In addition to, of course, those horrible forest fires, wildfires that they're experiencing now, just they really don't need all of that compounding their efforts. That is such a sad situation right now. But I think perhaps we don't need to be so literal. When we describe wine as having cherry flavors, we know that cherries aren't added to the wine. So I think maybe there's a parallel to be made there that even though we may taste salt or feel like it has salinity, we know or I don't think we need to expect that there's actual salt, of course, added to the wine. That'd be illegal. But also that the salt may be just a sensation or a texture that we're tasting, like the minerality of the wine. You can, in fact, measure the degree of salinity in wine as you can for all liquids, even though that actually doesn't equate to how salty the wine may taste to you. That is a perception thing. We know that. Vines can absorb minerals, including salt, from the soil, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily passed on to the wine because, as you know, synthesizing different minerals and so on is an organic process. And what ends up in the grape and then finally what ends up in the wine after fermentation are different things. So I know that's not definitive, but I just wanted to talk a little bit about that concept of saltiness in wine because it can be confusing. My personal opinion is that the soils matter and so do winemaking techniques that bring forward maybe more fruit and therefore you're going to taste or perceive you taste less salt in the wine. But I do think in the end, it's probably a taste perception like we taste cherries that is personal and subjective and that it may be for me personally closer aligned to minerality in wine. So a texture thing, Minerality and acidity. Acidity is in there too. So acidity, saltiness, and minerality. I think those three work together and it's your interpretation of what you're getting, what you perceive, what your taste buds pick up, what's in your background as a taster is what's going to come through in the wine. (laughs) Elaine says, I love salty anything. Pairs well with my kryptonite chips. Oh, Elaine, that's my kryptonite as well. I got to tell you. 
bag of chips. I mean, I think there's people who are in the sweet camp and then the savory camp. So sweet is, you know, chocolate, maybe ice cream and so on. And then savory is like, I love bacon too. <laughs> That's why I nominated it. But chips and all manner of chips, Cheetos, <laughs> popcorn. So anyway, what is your favorite of all the pairings we discussed? And what pairings are you going to be trying on Valentine's Day? Whether you're going out or staying in, or there's Galentine's Day too. Is that the day before, the day after Valentine's Day? I'm never quite sure. But how are you celebrating? Do you have a wine lined up or haven't thought about it yet? All right. Well, that went faster than I thought. And thank you so much for joining me. I will talk to you again soon. Take care and bye for now. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this chat. If you like this episode, please tell a friend about it, especially someone who's interested in the wine pairing tips I shared. You'll find links to my wine reviews, the video version of this conversation, and a link to where you can join us on Facebook Live this evening in the show notes at nataliemclean.com forward slash 63. And finally, if you want to learn why the lemon or butter test can guide you on wine pairings, join me in a free online video class at nataliemclean.com forward slash class. Now, you won't want to miss next week when we'll be chatting with Mike Viseth, known as the Wine Economist, an award-winning author and professor emeritus in Washington. Mike took an around-the-world trip in 80 wines, Jules Verne style, to discover great value wines and the stories behind them. Thank you for taking the time to join me here. I hope something great is in your glass this week. Perhaps a wine that pairs well with your favorite aphrodisiac dish. don't want to miss one juicy episode of this podcast, especially the secret full-bodied bonus episodes that I don't announce on social media. So subscribe for free now at nataliemclean.com forward slash subscribe. Meet me here next week. Cheers. Cheers.